You're listening to Soundbites, a podcast by the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra to share, inspire, and empower our classical music community here in Northwest Arkansas and beyond. My name is Erjing Kong, your host for the podcast and concertmaster of APO. Today, we speak with Dwight Pilegray, who received his degree at Trinity College of Music, where he also performed with the Junge Europe Philharmonie in Germany, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and the Orchestra of the Royal Opera House. On completion of his degree, Dwight joined the Corps of Army Music, and after graduating from the Royal Military School of Music, took up his first post with the band of the Corps of Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. After five years with the Band of the Scots Guards, he now serves with the Band of the Grenadier Guards while pursuing a varied freelance career, performing, teaching, and playing in recitals playing in recitals with his ensemble, the Apollo Wind Quintet. He also completed his master's with distinction in conducting at the London College of Music. Dwight is equally at home with symphonic wind band and orchestral repertoire. Dwight, thank you so much for your time today to speak with us. I want to start with a very basic question, which is, what does a conductor do? I believe that uh, a conductor's job is to obviously keep time for the orchestra, um, to be a focal point for the orchestra's attention. But mainly um, my job, I feel, is to, to interpret the notes on the page give the orchestra a vision and then guide them into realizing that collective vision. I have to con convince them and get them to buy into my vision as well, but uh, my job is to guide them and make sure that we get as close to possible to what our vision is. And what is the history of the, the rise and the development of the position of the conductor? So, Conducting as we see it today is not really very old. It's kind of uh, about 150 years old in, in the guise that we have today. And even modern conductors, so conductors of the 21st century, far different to those of, that we had in the middle of the century and the beginning of the 20th century. But um, it stems from basically choral music, essentially, where they were shaping music and it developed on from there in the later times, in, Baroque, in the Baroque times, where you would have either a concertmaster, somebody directing from a keyboard or from the violin, that then developed to a conductor person standing at the front keeping time. Uh, later on, in, in, you know, there's a great um, raft of composers who were great conductors. Berlioz, Liszt was a great conductor, Wagner was a great conductor, Mahler was a great conductor, all of these guys. And it's really in the kind of mid 19th century where conducting as we know it developed where you have somebody standing at the front of an orchestra and really imposing their will for want of a better word on how the orchestra works and then early 20th century guys like Toscanini later on we have massive names in conducting Carrier, Bernstein, Klemperer, Furt Wengler the list goes on and on and on and on and on guys who are absolutely exemplary at the art of conducting Carlos Kleiber. And then we have some, some really decent people 
today. So um, it's been a long time. And now it's more about technical aspects and conducting has developed in a way where pretty much everybody technically beats the same way, but that's because you know, of time constraints in music. We need to have a, a guideline in what we need to do. And how did it come to be, Dwight, that most concert goers who see the sort of semicircle formation of the orchestra and the concertmaster, of course, being a violinist, how were those decisions made? Well, with all of these things, it's um, it's kind of organic process of um, of where things work. And so even the the seating arrangements that we use now, probably here in England and probably in the United States, they probably differ slightly. Towards the early part of the 19th century, strings would have been set up in a completely different way in terms of first and, vi- first and second violins sitting opposite one another because that's how the music's written. That's how the interplay works um, with the horn seated at the back and the, all the loud instruments seated at the back of the orchestra. There is no standard set way, though, for the orchestra to be set up. And it depends a lot on where you uh, are in... I speak from in Western Europe, so uh, Russian orchestras play in a different setup to the way that British orchestras play. German orchestras probably play different to we we do as well. Um, it depends on what kind of sound you're trying to recreate. If you're trying to do um, historically informed performance, the, the balance of things, the, the, the hall, the size of the hall, uh, and mostly conductor's preference. And you were speaking earlier, Dwight, about how the beat patterns are, are more or less universal. Could you speak more about the conductor's process and, as you were mentioning earlier, about developing a, a vision? Okay, so for me, uh, well, well, let me start, start again. When I was very young and learning to play the piano, part of your, your examinations is that you have to learn beat patterns. So these beat patterns have been codified for probably... 150, 200 years. So as musicians, we all know how to beat four, or you know how to beat three, um, and there is a shape to what we do, but it's not concrete. So not everybody has to follow in the same shape, but generally be in the same uh, figure about that. Personally, for me, I've taken on lots of things from my conducting tutors and developed them into my own style, which I now pass on to my own students, but say, look, this is the basic shape that you need, but that's up to you how you utilize that because I'm, people are different, so, uh, so that works. In terms of my preparation, it involves me listening to hundreds of different recordings of the same piece and looking at the score, reading roundabout by the time it was written in other pieces that were written around the same time because I like contextual stuff. I like to be able to say, uh, I've done this, I've done that, I've listened to this, and these are my uh, conclusions for this particular thing. And that's how I develop my vision. But having said all of that, you've got to be flexible. There's no point in going into an ensemble and saying, this is how I want it, if it's just not going to happen. So you just need to be flexible in terms of your ensemble, because it's not really yours. How do you see those negotiations often with musicians and conductor playing out? Um, well, my thing is, is that I try to be humble because I don't know everything. Just because I stand on the podium in front of you, that doesn't mean that I am the master of, of, of everything. So I do take other people's points into consideration. And if, if people say, well, we can't do that, or we can't play it like that, or it doesn't feel right, that's not the sound that you want, 
then I'm really happy to be flexible. But there are some things that I that you have to make a decision on and you cannot have in any organisation, you can't have 15 people trying to make a decision. So partly as a leader, that is my, my role. I have to sometimes say, well, this is the way that we are, we are going to go. Because, it's, you know, conducting is about leadership as well as musicianship. And that's something you just have to learn, though. You just don't get in there and you just have to learn how to negotiate. I think anyone can be on board with the idea of a democratic process where all voices are heard and building a musical vision. But I find it's often too easy to fall into a situation where essentially incompatible ideas build a kind of collage that is chaotic and far from unified. Or the other scenario where one voice squashes everyone else and you essentially have a dictatorship. Those are obviously extreme cases, but finding the middle point is not any easier in my experience. I'm wondering your thoughts on this. Part of the problem uh, I'm going to say that I have is that, um, you know, we've talked about this before. The way that we are taught uh, our art, classical music, for want of a better word, is very rigid. It's not very flexible. So um, many times I've come up against, well, I didn't play it like that with x and my standard response is but you're not with x now you're with me so you know let's try something let's try something new and music has got to be fun you've got to inject it's got to have an element of fun it's got to have an energy an element of life it's a living breathing thing and if you're absolutely rigid uh, about it then it's just no fun you can't bring any excitement to it if you're not willing to be flexible in your approach. And that's what I try to do with my ensembles. Yes. And Dwight, can you lead us into our piece, the Dvorak Serenade for Winds? Basically, it's one of those pieces where um, it's a small ensemble, beautifully written, beautifully balanced by a, a, a composer who kind of one of my favorites full of beautiful melodies is all about folk melodies and how he incorporates those into his his works opening is really strident really stately it's one of those pieces that makes you sit up and think oh, this is why i started playing playing music you know as a horn player and it's full of what, I, what we were just talking about, dance, dance rhythms. It's, it's full of dance and full of joy. And when you listen to something uh, as good as this piece is, um, you realise how much, as a professional musician, how much I don't know about music. You know, because I could play it a hundred times and I could play it a hundred times differently. Because there's so much subtlety in there, so much nuance in there. And because it's a really... It's a small ensemble. Everything that you do, you can hear. You can hear every uh, instrument. So the, the, the joy of doing small works like this is that you can pick up all of the details and all of the composer's intentions. And that's, a, that's the kind of thing that is a, a pathway into larger formats, larger works. For a small uh, little piece like this, even, even though it's a small chamber piece, I won't approach it any differently to how I would approach Mala 6, for example, small instruments. 
But one of my great things is that I say to people, you must play as though you're playing chamber music. So I'm looking at the first page of the score now. First things first, it's actually a, um, a forte entry for, for, for everybody. We understand that we've got oboes, clarinets and bassoons, a cello and, uh, and a bass and three horns. That in itself means that if I've got three horns playing forte, that's just crazy because two oboes playing forte against three horns is that balance doesn't work. So one of the things I have to do is decide how I am going to realise Dvorak's vision of everybody playing forte. And that probably means that horns are playing mezzo forte, finding the balance. So that's the first thing I want to look at. The second thing I want to look at is because it's chamber music, there is a lot of articulation in there. So I have to go into my rehearsal with an idea about how I want people to play, what I want, how I want that sound, whether it's martellato, tenuto, if it's staccato, all those different aspects, even if there are no markings on the, on the notes, there still has to be a forward movement. What I like to say to people is whenever you're playing, if you stop playing and then you're coming in again, you must listen so that you can take over from the person who's playing before you or hand over to the person who's playing after you. We don't play in isolation. It's not like we're playing in a little bubble. That is my job as the conductor to interpret that. And do you find with Dvorak to be a composer with whom you feel a special bond? And if so, what is it about his notational language, his musical language that grabs you? Well, you, uh, you know my area of research. So, um, okay, so there's a couple of things for me with Dvorak. Everybody knows Dvorak's Ninth Symphony or, or will know, it, or will know uh, a piece of it. And for those of you who don't know, um, the symphony was written whilst Dvorak was uh, in America. And it was written at a time when the United States were looking for their own cultural identity. That's the reason he was brought over. He was actually employed to, um, to find a national uh, sound for uh, the United States. He presented his symphony number no. nine, um, having heard some spiritual song by a chap called Harry Burley who's not just a chap, but he's actually, you know, a great spirituals arranger, really revered uh, in the United States. And he based his um, symphony on, on spirituals. He said that in the Negro spirituals of America, I find everything that there is for a national sound. So A, it's my area of interest, um, Dvorak. B, he used these, uh, these spirituals. But C, and most of all, he just writes a great tune. He's a, he's a really great composer. He absolutely understands about emotional engagement, if I could, uh, if I could say that. Um, so uh, he was a nationalist uh, com composer, so he used folk tunes for you know, his fellow bohemians to feel part of what was going on and mark them out as not being of the Italian school or the French school or the German school. So in doing that, he really touched people's dare I say, soul. Uh, and when I listen um, to Dvorak, what I, what I absolutely and instinctively feel is dance. It's all about dancing. Everything that he does has a lightness of touch, even though his music is serious. His Seventh Symphony, you know, it starts, it starts off really 
quite dark, I, I think. But actually, it's not really dark. It's maybe kind of like a little headache until he goes outside and, and starts dancing around. As a conductor, what I'm doing is I am looking at music of uh, early 20th century African-American composers. So I'm looking at William Grant Still, uh, William Dawson and Nathaniel Dett. And what I'm trying to extrapolate is where music actually, their influences actually came from in terms of spirituals and further afield uh, from West African music. I'm trying to trace back uh, to uh, various countries so that I can pull out some of those characteristics of the countries and use them in my conducting to highlight what those composers were trying to represent. I don't believe that we can, as conductors, just conduct, I know it's Western art music, but it has other influences and I don't think we can truly make good representation unless we know what those influences are. One of the things that you had mentioned prior in a conductor's preparation is to, of course, listen to lots and lots of recordings. How is that process when there, for example, may not be that many recordings for some of these pieces? Well, that, that, it's good and bad because obviously as a conductor, sometimes you can listen to too many recordings. Uh, so there's two things, you can listen to too many recordings and actually confuse yourself. Or you can listen to too many recordings and not have any idea and try and recreate somebody else's vision. So the fact that there aren't very many recordings of um, the things that, that I'm looking at is actually quite useful because what it means for me is, is that I'm pretty much going at these things bare with no preconceptions. I, have a, I look at the music, I listen to whatever recordings I can, but my work is, is gotta be informed by, by the research that I'm doing. So it's actually informed by looking at letters, looking at primary sources, you know how these things these things were, delving into the archives and seeing what was going on in their lives around that time, not only in terms of uh, their working lives, their personal lives, their relationships, but also in terms of the wider picture of social, socio-economic things, um, you know, teaching, all of that kind of stuff. It had an effect on how they presented their their music and so those are the things that I will use to conduct historically informed performances. And I think that's so interesting because I, I would assume that for many people the idea of interpreting and studying music via non-musical forms would be surprising perhaps to some people. Yeah I think so. So I think we are one of the only civilizations if I can say that who has a separate notion of music as a, as a separation from life. In my research, obviously, you know, going back to days pre-slavery where, where uh, West Africans were living in Africa, and even to this day, music is part and parcel of their, of their, everyday, of their everyday world. So it's, you, they don't have a thing where they sit down to say, right, now we're going to have a musical performance because they're doing music all day. And that music is informed 
by the things that go on. So there are birthing songs, there are work songs, there are songs only for women, there are songs for children, there are songs for rites of passage, all of that kind of stuff. That had a, an influence on the spirituals uh, in, in the United States, which in turn had an influence on those Americans who wrote Western art music. And those are the influences that I have to research and look at and say, well, yes, we've got this and it sounds like this, but actually it's informed by this. And this is where I think it needs to, where we need to bring this out. And that's what it's about. It's not just, you know, just sitting, standing up there, waving a stick around. You must have some knowledge about what you're doing, you know? Do you feel, Dwight, that performing historical music, music of five, six hundred years ago, for example, in modern day, in the time of COVID, when we're recording this, for example, it's a very abstract and speculative question, but do you imagine that there is space, let's say, for modern modern values, modern life, modern culture to find itself in historical interpretations? Wow. Well, uh, so... There was a study done by a Norwegian chap, Gjerdingen, and he said that you're either historicist or presentist, by which he means that you want to do stuff that is historically accurate, so playing on instruments from the actual period or replicas of those instruments from the period. Some people even go as far as dressing like from the period, but I wouldn't go that far. Or you're presentist saying that actually you can make a a good performance of piece written in 1750 on modern instruments, if you have enough research. So there are kind of two camps for that. Personally, I believe that, you know, we live in the 21st century, so you can still make a good performance on instruments of today. And um, I'm not sure of the necessity for research sake, yes, but it's not necessary for you to have to play on an instrument from 1750 and we also know that the historical performance is not strictly accurate all the time because sometimes they have to play on instruments that weren't from the period because they're more reliable you know if you can get a great sound playing on a modern instrument in an ancient style brilliant that's what I think. It's probably an understatement to say that you know 2020 uh, the time that we're recording this the time of Covid has changed all of us it has given us a lot of time for introspection. How has this changed you as a musician? And perhaps what are some hopes and plans as to what to implement into your conducting in future concerts post-COVID? Well, um, clearly we haven't been doing any any work. So uh, I haven't been put in front of an ensemble since January this, this year. I would like to think that um, Inwardly and outwardly, I haven't changed myself as a, as a person. I haven't changed how I feel about music, per se, but I have changed slightly in how we should be delivering music. And I found this year that um, my colleagues in the classical world have been very, very slow to take up with technology uh, and to try and deliver things by our technology. It probably goes back to the first thing we were talking about in classical musicians are slightly more rigid about things. So I would like to see and hope that our delivery for 
the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we, we really take up technology and we start to embrace technology in, in what we're doing. In fact, a colleague of mine, she is doing some research on how uh, we interact, how our brains interact with music and how by monitoring our brain waves, um, whether uh, it actually makes us and seeing how we react at what our, our activity is, if it actually makes us change the way in which we do performances. Now, I know that's kind of techno geekery, but in what she's doing and, and saying is saying that we have a physical and a mental response to the music that we are playing, but also the music we are playing depends on our physical and mental state. So it's a kind of weird thing. So one day you may be playing a concerto and you're feeling really great about yourself. And so it flies along and it really sings. And But another day, you're just not feeling yourself and it just feels different. And so that interaction of actually maybe playing a piece, but using your live reactions to react to what is going on with everybody else, that is uh, something that's re really excellent. And I would hope that hey, um, we start doing that. I would hope that we look at composers who are still alive in the 21st century. So being at university, that's where, that's where exciting things happen. And there are lots of exciting composers at university. But because we're so rigid in our classical music mentality, we still prefer to listen to guys who've been dead. Now, we still need to listen to them because they're great. But these guys are also great as well. We want to listen to them now. And finally, my third thing is, is that I'm really trying to change the perspective and the perceptions of what, what it is that we do as conductors in terms of how we communicate with our ensembles, with our audiences, how we use our bodies, how we use our gesture in terms of how we're going to um, get the best performances from, from each other. My job is to facilitate that, move it into the 21st century. I'm not saying that I want to do kind of wacky things but what I am saying is, is that there are a lot of tools at our disposal now that we should be utilising to get the best out of our ensembles and to engage our audiences. Well, Dwight, I have to say I've always admired your integration of experience and knowledge and intuition. And I feel like this short interview is emblematic of that. Thank you so much for sharing such a compelling sonic world and uh, sharing your, your thoughts and your time so generously. Thank you for asking me. It's been a great pleasure. I wish all your listeners a happy Christmas and for everybody to keep safe in these, uh, these COVID times. Thank you for tuning in to APO's Soundbites. If you enjoyed the episode, please share and tell your friends. More information about APO can be found on their website, arphil.org, A-R-P-H-I-L.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Please join us again next time for more explorations in the rich world of classical music. Music